This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. Tom Reaney, host of Jazz on the Mode at New England Public Media, and it's my pleasure today to welcome Ricky Riccardi, author of, of a couple of books on Louis Armstrong. The most recent is Heart Full of Rhythm, The Big Band Years of Louis Armstrong, published this summer by Oxford University Press. Ricky's previous volume is uh, What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Louis Armstrong's Later Years. That was published almost a decade ago by Pantheon. And Ricky is also the archivist at the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Queens, and he's um, also been writing an Armstrong-related blog for well over a decade. It's called Dippermouth, and you'll find it at dippermouthblogspot.com. And uh, Ricky, uh, thanks for joining me for this uh, Jazz Beat podcast edition of um, of the wonderful world of Louis Armstrong and Heartful of Rhythm. And um, I'd like to begin by asking you how it was that you got into Louis Armstrong. Oh boy, that's the uh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, for me, it, it's a funny thing. It actually happened 25 years ago. I, I remember it vividly. It was um, in September 1995. I was um, a 15-year-old kid here in the, the Jersey Shore. And uh, unlike many 15-year-old kids at that time, I was I was going through a Jimmy Stewart phase, <laughs> and um, I was watching the Glenn Miller story, and out comes Louis Armstrong. He does one number, Basin Street Blues, and it just knocked me out. The whole, the whole combination, the singing, the playing, uh, the persona, the voice, I was like, well, this guy is great. I need to hear more, read more, and find out more about him, and so... Uh, it was Columbus Day, 1995, a day that'll live in infamy, uh, when I went to the local library in, in Tom's River, New Jersey, and I picked up a George Avakian compilation called 16 Most Requested Songs, and it was all Armstrong numbers from the 1950s, from W.C. Handy album, Satch Place Fats, Ambassador Satch, and that was the moment. Yeah, that was the, the big bang. You know, I listened to that, and I knew that nothing was ever going to be the same, but in my my 15-year-old brain, I thought it was just going to be great. You know, here's an, a, a, an iconic figure. I'll listen to everything. I'll read everything. I'll learn everything there is to know about him because that was kind of how my brain was wired at the time. Um, but then I started confronting these narratives. Anytime I would pick up a book about Armstrong, you know, that he was a genius in the 20s. But by the time it got to the 1940s and 50s, the era that was really speaking to me, uh, you know, he was over the hill. He was commercial. He was an Uncle Tom. He was past his prime. He sold out. 
And I never quite bought that. And then I read the works of Dan Morgenstern and Gary Giddens and other like-minded um, yeah, people. Those are the ones that were kind of leading the way for me. And uh, from that moment on, you could almost say um, everything has been set in motion. You know, I, I, I decided to devote my life to getting people to take Armstrong's last 25 years more seriously and then, um, as you mentioned, my first book came out in 2011. I've been able to produce numerous CD reissues from the 50s and 60s in the last uh, decade. And I thought my work was done, but I realized that nobody was paying attention to the middle period, which is how we got to today. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell. The Big Bang happened, and I've been, uh, I've been preaching ever since. <laughs> I can relate to the preaching part all the way. Um... Uh, how is it that you um, landed the job as the archivist at the uh, Louis Armstrong House Museum? And tell us just briefly what that house museum is. Well, the Louis Armstrong House Museum is the house that Louis and his wife, Lucia, lived in from 1943 until their respective passings. Um, the house museum, until COVID, you know, our main um tour was people would come and visit the Armstrong house, would take a tour, you know, everything is 100% original. And so that was always kind of, you know, the main program. Uh, but then there's the world's largest archives for any single jazz musician, which the core collection is Lewis's stuff, everything he saved while living in Queens. But the archives have grown to encompass 13 separate research collections, the Jack Bradley collection, the Josta Hagloff collection, all these collections devoted to Armstrong. And so I was a researcher researching my first book, and I would go there to the archives about, I don't know, once or twice a, um, a month, starting in 2006, and listen to Lewis's tapes and read his scrapbooks and, and just, you know, I wanted to get in touch with the real man. And uh, I got to know the staff there. I got to know the director, the late Michael Cogswell. And I remember after my first visit, I, I turned to my wife. I said, I need to work there. Like I said, that's the only job I'm qualified for. <laughs> At the time, I had a master's degree in jazz history and research. But my day job was painting houses for my father, the painting contractor. And sure enough, after years of uh, writing a blog and doing research, uh, Michael told me that they got a grant for an archivist to process the Jack Bradley connect, uh, collection. And I have a journalism background. You know, I, I don't have any library chops, uh, you know, <laughs> to brag about. But I decided to throw my hat in the ring and I uh, I landed the job of my dreams. And I, I always give cre credit to Michael because he knew that he could have hired somebody with more archival experience, but then they would have had to learn everything there was about <laughs> Louis Armstrong. And Michael figured it was easier to hire an Armstrong expert and teach him everything there is to know about cataloging. So I've been there 11 years and, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever leave. <laughs> it's the dream job. <laughs> well, good for you um, because you... Uh, I know impressed me and a whole lot of other people is uh, Louis Armstrong's uh, sort of perfect representative uh, on planet Earth uh, through the writings, through the um, public addresses that you give about Armstrong, and of course through the House Museum itself. Uh, you've just done, you know, wonderful uh, work to, you know, keep Louis Armstrong before us in our um, in in popular culture and in scholarship. And so um, tip of the cap to you, Ricky, uh, for uh, everything that you do. I mean, the Dippermouth blog alone is uh, just has been a wonderful resource and, and, uh, and diversion almost for years for many of us who, 
who loved Louis Armstrong, too. You know, one of the things I noted in A Heart Full of Rhythm, you quoted from um, a couple of different sources. Uh, one of them was Variety, in which uh, Louis Armstrong's name was spelled L-E-W-I-S, and then from the Chicago Defender, where I think it was spelled phonetically, as many people, of course, have pronounced his name over the years, as L-O-U-I-E. Correct, I, yeah. <laughs> I was amazed to see the Louis, L-E-W-I-S, in that uh, Variety um, piece. And do you have any idea how it got spelled that way or why at that early, what was that, 1929 or 30? That one was 1930. And um, it's funny, early in his career, they misspelled his name a bunch of different ways. In in Chicago, uh, in the mid-20s, a, a frequent typo was Luis, L-U-I-S. It comes out at least three or four times. And so I think where that comes from is he always gave his name as Lewis. And so if a reporter was talking to him and heard him say, you know, Louis Armstrong or you know, Louis Armstrong's going to appear here, I think maybe, you know, without fact-checking, the, their brain just kind of settled on L-E-W-I-S or L-U-I-S. Um, his draft registration card is actually made out to L-E-W-I-S because he probably gave his name as Louis. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned, almost everybody called him Louie. And um, the black press in the 30s, you know, I wouldn't say ex- exclusively, but in headlines and in articles and, and frequently, they used L-O-U-I-E because that's just what they called him. And, and you know, he made some records at the time, Laughing Louie in 1933. So, um I think it just kind of set off this never-ending debate of, you know, what's the right way <laughs> to refer to, to Armstrong. And I've, I've made the argument that there is no right way, that both ways are the right way. You know, some people get very touchy about it. Uh, I tend to go with Lewis because that is what he preferred. And, and he once gave an interview and when she said his mother never called him Louis. So that's good enough for me. But I always make the uh, the point that every musician and the musicians I interviewed, the musicians I consulted their oral histories, his wives, you know, Lil Hardin and Lucille, uh, Joe Glazer, and anybody and everybody called him Louie. And he didn't go around correcting them. You know, I think he was fine with it. But if you asked him his name, he said Louis. So I, I tend to stick with that. But if, as long as you're talking about him, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, a call one night from an irate listener. This goes back about well over 30 years about what's with this Louis Armstrong. I always called him Louis because my point of reference was Hello, Dolly, which I there heard as a 9- or 10-year-old kid. And, of course, he's saying this is Louis, Dolly. And um, and and then uh, I noticed also, I think, in the— um, I was at the Max Jones biography, which was the first book I read on Armstrong, that he sometimes underscored the I.S. Uh, signing off on his uh, on some correspondence. But anyway, I got a call from a listener who was really upset um, that I was calling him Lewis. And, and yeah, I, re- I, re- I-, I referenced Hello, Dolly, for this uh, gentleman, and he said, oh, this is some contrary evidence. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've never forgotten that line, you know? Yeah, no, I've... I've heard it both ways. People angry that they think Lewis is too pretentious, and then people who think that Louis is too, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of making a joke out of him, and you know, all white people called him Louis. So there's there's always something to get offended about. But like I said, as long as you're talking about him, call him Louis, call him Lewis, call him Dipper Mouth, Gate Mouth, Satchel Mouth. You know, I'm I'm happy. Now, in Heartful of Rhythm, the big band years of Louis Armstrong, just give us a sense of what the sort of narrative scope is in his. 
a life and career from what roughly 1930 through the mid 40s. What what are the sort of the um, you know the high water marks of what's going on in Louis Armstrong's career during that period? Well, these are the years that the the jazz community, which I'm a proud member of. I mentioned I have a, a master's in jazz history and research, and you know I, I was raised on Gunther Schiller and all these books, but. You know, it was always Armstrong's genius shone brightest until about 1928. And then, you know, there was this kind of rediscovery, you could say, of the All-Stars years and, you know, all the high points of Ella Fitzgerald and Satchel Place Fats and all that stuff. But this middle chunk, if you've asked your average jazz historian, you know, what happened to Louis Armstrong in the big band years, I think the standard narrative was, well... He kind of went commercial. He had this Guy Lombardo sound. Uh, his bands were terrible. They were out of tune. He made some embarrassing movies. The band wasn't popular during the swing era. And uh, they were just muddling through uh, as the times passed them by until Town Hall and the All-Stars formed. And then Lewis was rejuvenated. And I knew that there had to be a deeper story because that, that was the story that most Armstrong biographers kind of went through. And so for this book, I only dealt with contemporary sources. You know, I glanced at, you know, I know all the biographies of Terry Teachout, Thomas Brothers, but I didn't, I didn't want to consult them. I wanted just to read the music trades, the jazz press, the black press, what was going on at the time. And that's when my eyes were opened, and I hope the book is opening other eyes, that these were the years where Armstrong really becomes a multimedia international pop star. And so all the stuff about kind of taking it for granted is is kind of uh, misleading because, you know, it's this period, not the hot fives and hot sevens, which I will never say a disparaging word. Those are the most influential recordings. God bless the hot fives and hot sevens. But this book begins with OK Records making the decision to change Armstrong from making race records and, and then now making pop records and giving him all the Tin Pan Alley songs of the day that all their white artists were singing. And to me, it was a genius move because it's kind of the reverse of what we usually get, where it's, you know, it's usually black innovation is followed by white imitation. You know, we get Benny Goodman with the swing era and Pat Boone doing Little Richard, and it's always this kind of thing. This is the inverse where Armstrong is bringing a complete African-American sensibility into the white pop world and kind of blowing it up from within. And so his performances, his recordings in this period, you know, almost everything he records immediately goes into the canon, becomes part of the great American songbook. Uh, his trumpet playing is, you know, probably at its most influential. You can pick any solo from between 29 and 33, and you can find traces of those solos in improvisations, in arrangements, in, in compositions. Um, but then there there is, you know, the international thing. He goes to Europe in the early 30s, and he conquers movies. He conquers radio. He breaks down barriers for his race. He becomes the first African-American to host a nationally sponsored radio show and to uh, first African-American jazz musician to publish an autobiography and first African-American to get featured billing in a Hollywood film. And so to me, and he's on Broadway, you know, swinging the dream and all these things. So for me, it's just one thing after another uh, where, you know, when we're too blinded by what's going on with Benny Goodman and Count Basie, you know, on 52nd Street, as important as all that is, there was a much larger world out there. And Armstrong was conquering that world. Um, uh, let's take a moment here to listen to an Armstrong recording. Um, 
and one that's a you know I think a genuine watershed in his career, which is I can't give you anything but love. I remember Ricky that when I got into Armstrong and I began reading about him, um, there was a, this was almost like a demarcation line: the Hot Fives, the Hot Sevens. Uh, he's a star in New York for a while with Fletcher Henderson. He records as a sideman with a ton and a half of blues women in the mid twenties. Then he's back to Chicago. Then he returns to New York, and he makes this recording. And the point of demarcation that I'm referring to is that everything Armstrong had done before that was deemed sort of pure jazz, the essence of this new, exciting African-American idiom, and that suddenly Armstrong's embrace of the popular song diluted the purity of not only his work but of jazz. And, And that was one of the earliest sort of impressions that I got of jazz scholarship, of criticism, what have you. But um, uh, let's listen to this uh, a song and, uh, and, and hear you talk about it a little bit. Uh, I can't give you anything but love. Thank you. 
That's Louis Armstrong in March 1929 in New York uh, performing I Can't Give You Anything But Love. Tell us a little bit more about the significance of this in Louis Armstrong's career and also, of course, just to celebrate the brilliance of this performance. Well, you, you mentioned the line of demarcation, and that's exactly why I start my book with this recording, because um, that line is there. But for me, it's it's not something to run away from, but it's something to embrace. And and Armstrong comes to New York in March of 1929 for the sole purpose of recording that number. Um, Tommy Rockwell was uh, the main guy at OK Records who noticed that the Hot Fives were selling well, but their setup, even with Earl Hines on piano, you know, those those summer 1928 recordings are still trumpet, trombone, clarinet, banjo. You know, that sound was already kind of out of date. And so Rockwell wanted Armstrong to kind of compete uh, with all the pop artists. And so even by December 28, if you notice, you know, Armstrong's recording Don Redman arrangements. He's got a couple extra reads there. You know, they're doing Save It Pretty Mama and Boku Jack. And so there's already a shift in place. But uh, Rockwell just wanted Armstrong to come to New York so he could take over his career. And I Can't Give You Anything But Love was the big pop hit of 1928. And so Armstrong comes for two nights. He plays at the Savoy Ballroom with Louis Russell. And then after the engagement, they go to the studio and record this number. And I have quotes from Charlie Holmes, the band's out of saxophones, that they were there all day doing take after take, working on the balance, going over and over because they wanted the record to be perfect. And to me, it's a very smart record because the band has nothing to do. All they're doing is playing the arrangement. And I'm not the arrangement. All they're doing is playing the melody. Um, it just drones on and on back there. But, you know, that's what people wanted to hear. And so if you take Louis Armstrong out of the equation, it sounds like any 1929 dance band playing the melody that I can't give you anything but love. But then you drop him in the middle of it. And the way he plays the melody on the trumpet, then the way he sings, I mean, you know, changing uh, the written melody, changing the rhythm, throwing in little mumbling and scat singing and uh, passion is the main thing he brings to it. And then he picks up the trumpet and just, you know, it's a rhapsody at the end there with the high note ending and everything else. And so... If you were familiar with, um, you know, Cliff Ukulele, Ike Edwards version or, you know, anybody, Lily Del Christian, you know, then you heard Armstrong. It's, it sounds like he's coming from another planet. And that record, I think, had a huge impact because you listen to Ethel Waters. She records it with uh, Ellington in 1932 and basically does an Armstrong impression during the vocal, uh, which is humorous. But a few years after that, you get Billie Holiday recording I Can't Give You Anything But Love, and she's no longer impersonating Armstrong, but she's phrasing it and feeling it in a way that would not have been possible without Armstrong's influence. So for me, that one recording kind of sets everything in motion. So instead of being a line of demarcation that this is the beginning of the end, to me, it's, you know, the continuation of the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the beginning of his influence, because now more people were hearing him on OK's pop series than they were on the race series. And so it's only a few short years later to Billy and Ella Fitzgerald and to all the great trumpeters and, and saxophonists and anybody else, I think they probably heard these pop sides more than anything else that Armstrong had recorded to this point. So to me, this is actually the beginning of Armstrong, the pop star. 
And that's not a dirty phrase. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was curious to see Armstrong referred to, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, newspaper reporter, to reference the fat Negro trumpeter as though uh, Armstrong was an unknown um, figure even into the early 1930s. Do you recall what I'm referring to? Yeah, yeah. When he uh, when he's in Ain't Misbehave, I'm sorry, he's in Connie's Hot Chocolates. Yeah, he his 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 big feature is Ain't Misbehaving. That kind of makes him a star on Broadway. I mean, Armstrong himself gave gave that number the credit for his crossover success. But when the New York Times, yeah, they reviewed it, it was an an unnamed fat Negro trumpet player. You know, they 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 knew it was good, but they didn't know who he was. Give us an idea, Ricky, of when it is that Armstrong becomes you know, a veritable household name. I would have assumed that that was already the case by, say, 1929 or 30. Yeah, I, I think it's in this period, but it had not happened. One quote that was an eye-opener for me was um, an interview with, I believe it was Darnell Howard or, I, I, I forget, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it was Gavin Bushnell. And he mentioned how... They remembered, the New York musicians remembered Armstrong with Fletcher Henderson, but they kind of lost track of him. And they weren't sitting there buying every Hot Five and Hot Seven and and studying the solos. You know, Chicago was and other places were, but uh, Bushnell said that, you know, the New York musicians, you know, they had really forgotten about him until he came back in 29. And then he showed everybody that he was the king. And so this is one of my theories and again, it's not a negative theory, but I, I I think the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens, their impact, I don't want to say it's been overblown, but I think that it didn't really, they, those records didn't really become what they have become until they were reissued in the 1940s. So then everybody with hindsight, you know, Columbia, George Bakken put out this high profile hot jazz classic series. And all of a sudden people in the 40s were listening to Lewis in the 20s saying, oh my God, look at that. You know, everything we're doing now, he was doing then. What a, what a genius. And that's great, and it's true. But in the 20s, you know, I think the the market was small, and I think uh, the black community probably knew who he was, and, you know, musicians from all backgrounds knew who he was. Um, but household name, no, no, far from it. And I think uh, that was Tommy Rockwell's goal, was to turn him into a household name. So you get 1929, he's the unnamed trumpet player in the pit, and then in early 1932, Eli Oberstein of um, RCA, under oath in a, the trial with Armstrong and his manager, Johnny Collins, names Armstrong as the number one best-selling artist in the record industry, bar none, any style of music, any label, number one. And this is in the Great Depression. <laughs> this is an African-American jazz musician playing pop tunes with basically Guy Lombardo bands. And it, it happens that quick to go from unnamed to go to number one. And then by yeah, that same year, 32, he's appearing in Betty Boop cartoons and Paramount shorts and going overseas. And so it goes off yeah, these records. You know, that's kind of the whole point that the book tries to make is that instead of these records kind of representing this kind of commercialization, uh, as a bad thing, it's like, no, the, uh, these records introduced Armstrong to a, an entirely new audience, a sizable audience, a worldwide audience. 
and his versions of say when you're smiling and ain't misbehaving and after you've gone and some of these days and st louis blues and song of the islands and every everything i'm confessing that i love you body and soul memories of you exactly like you all of me yeah these are the <laughs> that's the great american songbook and armstrong's versions in this period put those songs on the map so again not to take away from the hot fives and hot sevens but uh to me with I Can't Give You Anything But Love and these 1929 recordings and Broadway and OK Records switching him over to the pop side, that's the birth of Louis Armstrong, the household name. Well, let's take a moment now to listen to Ain't Misbehavin', which was one of two or three songs by Fats Waller and Andy Razaf that uh, Armstrong sang in that Broadway show, The Hot Chocolates of 1929. Of course, another of the songs was What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue? Um... So let's hear Ain't Misbehavin', a magnificent performance with Armstrong's trumpet and vocal, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment.
Louis Armstrong there in 1929 performing Ain't Misbehavin' music by Fats Waller, the lyric by Andy Razaf, and uh, there with uh, Carol Dickerson playing the violin. It was Dickerson whose band Armstrong was working with at the time. And Ricky, uh, what can you tell us uh, further about uh, Ain't Misbehavin'? Well, uh, like I mentioned to Armstrong, this was this was the number that really uh, shot him into stardom. Um, and it's just a perfect performance. That vocal fractures me. And I play in almost every lecture I give because the way he emotes, you know, the way he is pleading, you know, oh, baby, my love for you. I mean, to me, that's the birth of soul singing, of Ray Charles, of James Brown, of R&B, you know, anything coming from that school. It's like there it is. Um superimposed on a on a Broadway pop tune and then the trumpet solo I mean it's a wonderful solo on its own merits but of course the the thing that everybody points out is the quote of Rhapsody in Blue which um, I find fascinating in a few different ways because Armstrong was a master of quotes and you know people like Taft Jordan you know said that these records were the first time they'd ever heard a musician do that and you know it became like a musical game and you know what could you incorporate into your solos but on a deeper level you know 1924 Paul Whiteman quote unquote makes a lady out of jazz by you know having Gershwin write Rhapsody in Blue and performing it at Aeolian Hall and to a lot of the music critics at the time that was like the future of jazz like you know jazz was going in a symphonic direction and you know thank you paul whiteman thank you george gershwin you know we've gotten away from the barnyard sounds of the original dixieland jazz band and now this is art and um you know, no, nobody in 1924 knew who Louis Armstrong was. Yeah, they were all just um, blinded by Gershwin and Whiteman. So here it is five years later, and Armstrong is using Gershwin's exact choice of notes uh, in the middle of his solo to actually demonstrate, you know, the shape of jazz to come. So, uh, you know, you could write a thesis on that three-minute record. There's so much going on. Certainly, yes. Uh, as your uh, words are conveying here with us uh, today and uh, moreover in the book, one of the driving elements of your narrative is a kind of argument against the uh, critical take on Louis Armstrong in the 30s and 40s. Uh, it's, uh, you bring us, I mean, it's shocking <laughs> to a degree, and I'm, fami- <laughs> I'm familiar with so much of it already, but to read it all over again in this narrative is just uh, yet another kind of shocking eye-opener at the condescension um, and uh, dismissal of Armstrong by so many in the American and British uh, uh, press of that period. And um, um, do you uh, find any of what is said of a slightly negative a nature about Armstrong to be at all valid? Sure. I mean, you know, I I wasn't there, obviously. <laughs> but um, the 31, 32, 33, 34, when he's ending every show with 100, 200, 300 high Cs, um, I mean, I, I have a passage from Ray Nance describing it. That's one of my favorite passages in the book because he makes the sound so exciting that, you know, it's like, oh, you know, to have witnessed that. But having said that, you know, it probably got a little monotonous. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm sure certain crowds went for it, but Armstrong himself admitted that that was a mistake, that that was just him kind of showing off for musicians. And after his uh, kind of exile from 
with chops trouble and managerial issues, you know, he comes back and that part of his um, stage routine is gone. And he gets better reviews, even in the black press. You know, they call him a much improved salesman. And so, um, again, even though I wasn't there to hear it and there's no record of it, um, I'm sure, you know, those critics who were just hounding him for, for doing that, I'm sure they were onto something. And I think, you know, later on he would agree with them too. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I think there was just this thing that, you know, they were always wishing for the Armstrong of 1928 to come out on stage and they couldn't enjoy the Armstrong of, you know, pick a year, 1933, 35, 38, you know, I mean, he's right there in front of them. And so that stuff, I think, was unfair. And that, you know, I you could almost say I've devoted my career to kind of de debunking that stuff. And it's funny, I, before I wrote this book, I wasn't sure how deep it went. Like my first book, The All-Stars Years, holy cow. I mean, I have a chapter in that book called uh, Wrath of the Critics because in the 50s, you know, they all lined up. John S. Wilson and you, you name it. You know, they just they, they couldn't take anything that Armstrong was doing on stage. And so I always assumed that that was um, an all-stars thing. You know, times were changing, civil rights era, Lewis was a throwback, you know, his embarrassing persona, the smile, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this book, you know, going really deep with Leonard Feather and John Hammond and Spike Hughes and Edgar Jackson and, you know, all these writers, it's like, no, even George Frazier, who, you know, we, we've talked about is, uh, he writes these beautiful words about Armstrong in 1970. In 36, he's writing in Downbeat, you know, Armstrong's playing commercial junk and, you know, just you know, the worst band in the world and all this kind of stuff. So um, I don't agree with that. <laughs> you know? um, and I do think the recordings have also been undervalued. I mean, Sony hasn't done anything fresh with the 29 to 33 material they own since the early 90s, which is um, a shame. You know, they, they definitely deserve um, a, a box set of a, a Hot Fives nature. And and DECA, this was interesting. The DECAs, uh, if you spin a DECA record at 78 RPM, they all run a little flat. And the, you know, the DECAs just have to be spun at like 80 uh, RPM to, to get the sound. And so for years, those Decca recordings were, you know, people always said the band's out of tune and they, they always sound flat and oh this, you know, this is Lewis's worst band. And I don't have perfect pitch, but one of my pals who, uh, actually teaches at Berkeley, a trumpeter named Phil Person, Phil has perfect pitch and he, he, te he teaches ear training and he came to me and said, you know, you know, the Deccas are always reissued in the wrong key. You know, Mosaic did it in the wrong key. Universal did it in the wrong key. And so in 2016, Universal asked me to oversee a digital set, uh, the Decca singles, 1935 to 46. And I made the point to Universal. I said, you know, we need to pitch correct this. And so Phil actually helped out and we pitch corrected each one. And it was amazing just tweaking them a hair. All of a sudden, the band snapped into place. You know, the rhythm section was 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 hot. You know, the arrangements were just right on point. And so I think the bands, you know, that people always complain that the records were out of tune and flat and all stuff. Well, you know, maybe they didn't hear them at the proper speed. And so now, you know, there you can go to Spotify or Apple Music and and find the deck of singles and and listen to them the way they sounded live and so yeah so i'm i'm starting to get back into preaching territory but that's yeah, that's what always happens yeah and but in a way what you're underscoring is that our 
uh, appreciation of Armstrong, as is the case with you know other historical figures, um, is uh, is uh, is enhanced, is clarified, is made more accurate uh, in retrospect and by you know digital technology and all of of what you were able to bring to that mosaic box. Because I remember trying to listen to the Armstrong Decas back when they were first reissued. Some of them were in what was called <laughs> simulated stereo and things oh. like that. I mean, they were absolutely god-awful records. And um, I remember um, uh, the English uh, poet uh, Philip Larkin, who wrote about jazz on the side, saying of a Chick Webb uh, recording, which, of course, I picked up with relish. I couldn't wait to hear this much you know, celebrated figure of the swing era, and of course the man who helped bring Ella Fitzgerald to prominence. And I listened to it, and as Larkin said, it was li- like listening to two empty suitcases falling down a flight of stairs. And at the time, I thought, <laughs> absolutely, that described it perfectly. Right. And of course, it seems like heresy to say something like that. And yet, um, you know, I listen now to the DECA, you know, whomever it was that reissued the Chick Webb you know, 20 years ago or so, and of course it's a whole different experience. And and so we're yep. able to, I think, appreciate this work in um, almost a more purified uh, setting than uh, than the, uh, you know, the daily reality of, um, of the business, of entertainment, of the work of newspaper reporters and critics. I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic in a way to Frazier or others who may have found Louis Armstrong a little dull or a little bit off or a little bit monotonous um, back in the day. And, of course, those guys made a living in a way by uh, not mincing words. And um, and sometimes they, they seem so um, harsh and judgmental to us in, in retrospect. But um, I'm struck by that sort of disparity between the popular press in the day and the— uh, and the sort of reverence that that we bring to Louis Armstrong today, so much of it retrospectively. And one of the things that jumped out at me from, from your book was a quote that comes from uh, the uh, 1933 moment when Coleman Hawkins comes to London and there's the possibility of a performance pairing him and Armstrong. And of course, they had played together in Fletcher Henderson's band in the mid-20s. But you say... In many ways, Coleman Hawkins represented the image and ideals of a true jazz musician more than Armstrong ever did. What motivated yeah. that statement from you, Ricky <laughs> Riccardi? Oh, because, again, you know, it's just this kind of umbrella term, jazz. You know, what what do you think of when you hear jazz? And, you know, you might think of somebody who's, who's improvising every night like their life depends on it and who you know, kind of stays away from commercial sounds, would never be accused of selling out, is always up with the, the times and the trends and, and keeping modern. And, and, you know, that's that's like a, the last 90 years of, of jazz. And, you know, it's like, who fits that? Well, you know, Miles, of course, and, you know, there, there are, are figures. Um, but to me, from that generation, I mean, what I just described, I mean, that's Coleman Hawkins to a T, you know, he, he played body and soul every night, but he played it different every night. Maybe a few phrases would, would come back, but it's, it was always a fresh improvisation. You could tell when he's inspired, you can tell when he's a little tired or, you know, or at the end when he's really kind of hanging on, you know, so it's always in the moment. Um, you know, he doesn't care if he's recording with Red Allen. He doesn't care if he's recording with uh, Sonny Rollins, you know, Monk. He's always going to push himself and be Coleman Hawkins. And, you know, and so that is, 
you know, I think that's just like what people go to jazz school for. It's why people read jazz magazines. It's like that's like the jazz ideal. And so with Armstrong, I, I also make the point in the book that I can't think of another figure who basically wrote all the rules. Like, okay, here's how you improvise. Here's how you tell a story. Here's how you build a solo. Here's how you swing. Here's how you sing. Here's how you scat. You got it? Okay, now I'm going to break all those rules. <laughs> and so, you know, he becomes the master of of setting his solos, which you know, he wasn't the only one to do it, but you know, at his level, you know, if you heard him play Lazy River in 1931 and heard him do it in 1961, you were pretty much going to hear the same contours of that solo. Uh, same thing with the recordings. You know, he didn't want to play bebop. You know, he didn't. You know, he didn't find the need to be recording. You know, uh, hard bop in the 50s or whatever. He was happy with the All Stars or or whatever it was. You know, so he didn't need to be on the cutting edge of innovation. Um, so, you know, then you got stuff like he's doing comedy numbers and novelty numbers and Hawaiian songs and he's acting in movies and he's doing comedic roles, which he bragged about. You know, he loved doing comedy and all this stuff. So to me, Armstrong is, you know, like I named my prologue, he's bigger than jazz. And so, you know, is he like the definitive jazz musician of all time? Sure. But he expands in a way that almost no other jazz musician does in terms of tackling different styles of music and being open to record everything. And, and like I said, conquering radio and TV and movies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he becomes a, 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 a an entertainer, a, a cultural figure, an icon. Yeah, it's bigger than just um, a genius saxophonist improvising every night. And so, and Armstrong didn't apologize for any of that. You know, I mean, that that's the thing. His standards, I think, drove people crazy because they viewed the 1920s Armstrong as a relentless innovator. And, and yeah, he was, you know, I mean, those hot fives and hot sevens speak for themselves at the same time. We don't know what he was doing live, you know, but we can read the reviews and we know that he had show pieces every night. He did butter and egg man every night. He did heebie jeebies every night. He did Cavalier Rusticana every night and Sugarfoot stomp every night. And I'm sure he did those the same way every night. Cause that, that was just his thing. Once he, once he worked on a solo and got it to the point that he was satisfied, that became his concept. And he would compare himself to Paul Robeson singing Old Man River or Marian Anderson singing spirituals or even mentioned Mozart and Beethoven and say they don't change. <laughs> you know, so when you come to hear Louis Armstrong, whether it's at the Newport Jazz Festival, whether it's at a high school gymnasium, whether it's at Carnegie Hall or whether it's at a jazz club, you're going to hear his conception of Lazy River, his conception of On the Sunny Side of the Street. Nobody else could pull off those solos. Nobody else can make them sound like he did. Um, but, you know, he was the one who got attacked for that because they figured, oh, you know, he's in a rut. You know, he hasn't changed his playing in 30 years. And he never viewed it that way as, you know, to be able to pull off those solos in its 50s and 60s after years of chops troubles. I mean, that was miraculous in and of its own thing. So that that's where I'm kind of getting at, where, of course, Armstrong is the definition of jazz. But you just have to back up a little bit and see, you know, that his world was much larger than just, you know, improvising on the blues every night. You know, he was in show business. There's no question about that. Well, um, there is so much more to discuss, Ricky, and I hope that we'll have a chance to follow up with another edition of Jazz Beat with Ricky Riccardi and, and more of Louis Armstrong. But for the moment, uh, 
Let's uh, wrap this uh, uh, part up with Stardust. And um, and let me hear you. Um, th- this is always at the top of my desert island list for for all of music, not just Louis Armstrong. But um, let me hear what you have to say about Stardust, which, of course, is another example of a great popular song. This is Hoagie Carmichael and Mitchell Parrish and, and what Louis Armstrong does with it. And, and when is this oh, done? This is done in, in November 1931. But this this gets on the subject that we just talked about. Lionel Hampton remembered Armstrong recording this, not recording, is playing this live in California in 1930. And so this was something that was in the book. And two takes survive. And they're they're different enough. But at the same time, you know, the contours of the solo are, are there. And I think that's something that also stays with him for the rest of his career. Even the musicians who were in his bands and heard him play what were perceived as the same solos every night would always mention that there would be these little subtle changes. You know, he would always change it up a little bit. And so I think, you know, with Stardust, we're we're hearing something that's like 90% chiseled, but it's so damn good. (laughs) Who cares? You know, um, for me, this is number one. Uh, I've been asked to name my 10 favorite Armstrong songs, my 20 favorite Armstrong songs, and I sweat and I can't do it. And, you know, I kick myself when I'm finished and, you know, oh, it's it's the hardest thing in the world. But anytime ask, anyone asks me to name number one, it's always Stardust. Because to me, this is it. This is the three-minute tour de force. I mean, he is in the driver's seat the whole time, except for, you know, the few bars before the vocal. Um you can't get a better song than Stardust, and everybody has done it. So there's that's the thing. That that tempo is lost. You know, that that tempo is so insistent and with those reeds, you know, um hammer hammering the one and three, which we don't do as jazz people, but the reeds are there on one and three and the rhythm sections accenting two and four. And so there's actually this kind of push-pull feeling going underneath that I think liberates him. I think that's a that's a feel that is lost, you know, Count Basie and everybody else had just smoothed it out. And, you know, now we swing in a different fashion. And even Lewis, too, you know, I mean, he always had swinging drummers and bass players. But in this early 30s period, that push-pull with the one and three accents and the two and four in the rhythm section, uh, I think he just, it just liberated him just to float on top. And so the trumpet playing... You know, you, you can't top it. It just is what it is. The ending is all opera. I mean, every phrase, he's just, he might as well, you know, be on, on stage doing, you know, I don't know, you know, Pagliacci or something. It's just so, so Caruso coming through the trumpet. But of course, you know, the main event, I think, uh, is that vocal. Um, because everybody knows the, the, the melody. You, know, you listen to Nat King Cole, listen to Bing, those beautiful poetic lyrics by Mitchell Parrish, you know, he takes that last phrase, you know, the memory of love's refrain, and he, you know, he boils it down to a to a riff. It's basically the riff that becomes one o'clock jump a few years later. You know, oh memory, oh memory, and it's just like, where does that come from? And he only does that on one take, and it's like, what is going on in his brain? Um, you know, to to be able to do this, and so yeah, so for me, this is it. You know, taking maybe the greatest uh, pop song of all time, one of the most recorded pop songs. You can line them all up. You will not find another version that sounds like this one. You know, you didn't mention it, but it always strikes me, too, that the way he phrases, the way he utters O, O, (laughs) O-H. And it reminds me, you know, what Gunther Schuller said about West End Blues, that, that this... 
you know, answers all, you know, arguments that this music is the equal of Beethoven or Brahms or what have you, and it's emotional richness. And I think of how much Armstrong conveys emotionally in this uh, performance as well, and of course, countless others. But uh, for now, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Ricky. We'll talk again, and here is Louis Armstrong performing Stardust. Start of melody 